Hello and welcome to this edition of Sentencing Matters, a podcast from the Queensland Sentencing Advisory Council. I'm Kirsten McGregor, the Council's Community Engagement Manager. Sentencing Matters, a podcast that informs, engages and advises on sentencing issues in Queensland. Today we're talking about an issue that cuts to the heart of our community and which has been a central focus for the Council for the past 12 months, sentencing for child homicide offences. In October 2017, the Attorney-General and Minister for Justice Yvette Darth asked the Council to review sentencing outcomes for where a child has died. As she said at the time, the terms of reference were in response to growing community concern about whether current sentences were adequate. Twelve months later, after an enormous amount of community consultation and research, the Council has now released its final report, including eight recommendations for reform. So let's hear from the Council Chair, the retired Judge John Robertson. John, welcome. Thank you, Kirsten. Now, this has been an incredibly complex terms of reference. Can you, can you give a sense of the particular challenges of this review? Well, firstly, uh, the uh, Council undertook uh, major research uh, involving uh, a data set covering all sentences for child homicide uh, from 2005 to 2017, so a 12-year period, uh, to coordinate and um, analyse that data was in itself uh, a gigantic uh, task, uh, which resulted in us publishing um, some months ago, our research paper, uh, which has contributed to the debate since then. Uh, also, uh, this particular um, type of offending involving the unlawful killing of a child uh, stirs up, um, understandably, uh, a lot of emotion and concern in the community. Uh, and. In going through these cases in such detail, uh, our research team and the council uh, have um, been through the whole gamut of uh, those emotions, mm. trying to objectively assess uh, an enormous amount of data uh, and to uh, uh, engage the community in a, in a formal way and an informal way uh, to um, uh, gauge community concerns and community views about the topic. But as you say, we do all have an emotional response to these cases. To what degree does emotion have to be removed from the equation when you conduct a review like this? Well, it's a, it's a good question. And um, speaking as a, a former judge, uh, people should uh, understand that judges are humans and feel emotions, and I have no doubt uh, every judge who has to sentence uh, a person for the unlawful killing of a child uh, goes through a gambit of emotions. But the difficulty is that uh, when a, a, a judge comes to sentence, he or she has to sentence in accordance with the law. And that does involve um, an objective approach to sentencing and balancing up a whole lot of complex factors. And Justice Kirby, uh, who's uh, a former High Court judge and um, a frequent commentator in the media, uh, once said uh, in a case, putting emotion to one side is the best way 
that the justice system has devised for avoiding both the appearance and actuality of that extraneous considerations have entered the sentencing process. That's a legal way of saying that sometimes if a judge allows himself or herself to become emotional in the sentencing process, uh, parties may feel that the judge is uh, biased, they may mm. feel that the judge is unsympathetic, uh, and that can affect public confidence in the courts. Is it a question of balance, though? Because the, the, the community sentiment seems to be that, in fact, emotion's not been taken into account at all. Yes, it, it, it's, it's interesting um, because our uh, engagement with the community through uh, the summits and the uh, focus groups, which is referred to in some detail in the report, uh, and research on this very topic, uh, informs us that uh, when people in the community are given information about how complex the process is and what factors have to be taken into account and how diverse the factual circumstances in these particular cases of child homicide are, uh, most people understand um, why the approach has got to be objective to achieve fairness and ultimately that's the aim is to achieve a fair outcome and, or to use what the legislation says a just sentence. I guess at the heart of that particular sentiment is this notion that courts aren't meeting community expectations but community expectations aren't in fact a formal consideration for sentencing are they? They're not but uh, it's been stated many times both in the High Court and in the Queensland Court of Appeal uh, that uh, the community uh, must understand that when judges are sentencing they're acutely aware uh, that uh, if they impose a sentence that's manifestly excessive or uh, manifestly inadequate or weakly merciful as, as it was described once in a case uh, that is likely to undermine public confidence in the courts. And in reality, one of the governing principles in the Penalties and Sentencing Act uh, actually engages the court in what is referred to as denunciation. So the sentence must uh, denounce the behaviour uh, and be adequate enough to... Uh, as it says in the legislation, to make it clear that the community acting through the court denounced the sort of conduct in which the offender was involved. So in that sense, um, community concerns, community expectations uh, fold in to the proper legal approach to sentencing. Can we talk a bit about manslaughter cases? And I guess the key difference between manslaughter and murder is the lack of intent. But what particular challenges do manslaughter cases present for sentencing? Well, uh, it, it's been said many times before we commenced our, uh, our project uh, that of all the uh, offences uh, that you can, you can think of, all the offences in the criminal code, this is the one that um, is most diverse uh, and complex, both in relation to circumstances of the offender and the circumstances of the offending. Uh, that's been stated 
in courts of appeal in the High Court um, and, and courts of appeal in other states on many occasions. And it's demonstrated, I think, quite, um, quite well in the two cases that I uh, refer to uh, in my preface to the report. Uh, that is, there's one case where uh, the offender was uh, a male and a, and a trusted, a male in a position of trust, who effectively tortured uh, a baby over some months leading up to the child's death. Uh, and then the other one that's referred to is the man who uh, drove to the shops with his nine-month-old baby in the car, uh, went into the shops, got distracted, uh, and was away for a couple of hours. In, in, in that time, uh, she died of dehydration. Now, both have unlawfully killed a child, but I don't think any fair-minded person would say they both uh, deserve the same sentence. So I think those two cases, which are actual cases, demonstrate in a fairly simple, straightforward way why this is such a complex uh, offence to deal with by way of sentence. Okay, so let's take a closer look at the final report into child homicide sentencing and let's look at some of these key findings. The councils found that sentencing for child manslaughter in particular does not adequately reflect the defencelessness and the vulnerability of child victims. How did the council reach that finding? Uh, by a number of uh, methods. Firstly, um, uh, quantitative analysis of the data. When we came to analyse the cases for that 12-year data set, mm. um, as published in our research paper, uh, the average sentence for um, offenders who uh, cause the unlawful death by manslaughter of an adult um, was 8.3 years and the average for a child was 6.8. Uh, that could be explained by factors such as the um, some of the examples I gave before tending to lower ab the average. But when we, when we allowed for those factors, the median sentences are, are about the same, uh, both for um, killing by violence and killing by criminal negligence. And uh, that surprised us and we came to the view um, that uh, that didn't recognise, particularly in the case of very young children, because our research shows that uh, children under four are the most mm. vulnerable um, and of course um, completely defenceless. Uh, so we, we came to the view that, in reality, uh, along with our consultation with the community, um, that the, uh, the sentences uh, were not reflecting that particular factor, the defencelessness and vulnerability of a small child. So you're recommending a new aggravating factor. Can you explain, I guess, firstly, what an aggravating factor yes. is and how this might work? Yes, well, our um, hope is that it finds its way into the... Um, the key section in the Penalties and Sentencing Act, Section 9. There's a recent example where uh, Parliament legislated to um, state that uh, the fact that an offence is a domestic violence offence is an aggravating feature. 
For those that are interested, it's section 9, subsection 10 of capital A. And the way in which the courts have responded to that, and particularly the Court of Appeal, which is the, the highest court in, in the state, indicates that um, it's had an effect in raising sentences. So an aggravating factor, very simply put, um, is a factor that the court must take into account and it makes the um, offence more serious. So at the moment, the age of the victim is not taken into account? No, there are, there are general provisions uh, in there which, which include the age and circumstances of the victim. But we thought in, in the context of this particular reference focusing on child homicide, that we felt something more was needed to recognise this particular class of offences which, which are so serious and disturbing. Uh, and that's very similar to the approach taken by Parliament in relation to domestic violence offences. Okay, so we're talking a statutory aggravating factor rather yes. than a general one. Yes. Okay, and how, how would that drive up head sentences? Well, um, again, if I could use the analogy of the domestic violence uh, offences, in 2016, a new offence was introduced into the Criminal Code, um, shortly described as choking, suffocating or strangling in a domestic setting. The maximum penalty was set at seven years. That's the same penalty, same maximum penalty for assault occasion bodily harm. Uh, and courts, of course, up until that time had been dealing with assaults occasioning bodily harm in a domestic setting, which involved choking and strangulation. Uh, and the courts, after this new offence came in, the district court, uh, were setting sentences in the 18-month to three-year bracket, depending on the mm -hmm. individual circumstances of the offender. But the Court of Appeal, by reference to subsection 10A, and by reference to the fact that it was a new offence, said, no, it's more serious. And the those comparable sentences that you've been relying on uh, to discern a range for assault, occasion bodily harm in a domestic sentence setting are not useful. This is a new offence, there's a new aggravating factor, and recently there were two Court of Appeal decisions which upheld sentences imposed in the District Court of four years. So it had a direct effect um, in driving um, sentences up. There have been calls for mandatory sentencing in child manslaughter cases. Why did the council not go down this path? Well, Queensland has uh, flirted with mandatory sentencing in the past. Uh, in 1986, uh, the Drugs Misuse Act uh, was amended to provide that all those convicted uh, whether a trial or a plea of guilty of trafficking in uh, Schedule 1 drugs would receive life imprisonment. And within 12 months, the prisons were bulging with uh, traffickers who were trafficking to feed their own habit at a, at a quite low level. They weren't getting the Mr Biggs. So all that had to be reversed and all those people had to be resentenced. Mandatory sentencing um, does not make any distinction between individual circumstances and it can lead to what lawyers call serious individual injustice. So let's go back to those two examples before. 
the father or stepfather who tortures uh, an infant, a very young child, a baby, leading to the child's death. He's convicted of manslaughter. The woman who goes outside, this is an actual case, who went outside to have a cigarette, leaving her baby in the bath and the baby drowned. Or the man that went into the shops, leaving his child. And both of those, in those latter cases, they were deeply remorseful from the start. They cooperated with the police. They pleaded guilty at an early stage. If there was a mandatory sentencing regime, even relating only to minimum mandatory um, parole eligibility dates, those three cases would be subject to the same sentence. And I, I don't think any fair-minded person looking at those simple examples based on real cases would say that that's a just outcome. And this is particularly so in manslaughter because there is that huge range of behaviour covered yes. by the charge. Yeah. And, and it, it would be very difficult to, to grade manslaughter, to, um, to structure the offence. Uh, and the other, the other problem is that um, it, always when you have mandatory sentencing uh, involving the death of a person, care has to be taken that you don't um, give the impression that one life is more valuable than another. So we, we, um, we obviously looked at that, we looked at mandatory sentencing, but we didn't think that was the answer basically for those reasons. Let's have a look at some of the other recommendations in your final report. The Council wants sentencing remarks released in a more timely manner. What's, what's behind that recommendation? We thought a very simple mechanism of having the judge's sentencing remarks made available, hopefully on the day, if that's possible, so that both the families and the media can, can read what the judge has actually said and understand uh, the process of his or her reasoning leading to the sentence. There's a very good recent example. Justice Davis sentenced a man on Friday in a case that attracted a lot of media interest. Uh, he, uh, through the um, uh, Supreme Court Library or court services, published his sentencing remarks and his remarks were actually televised. A and it has an enormous impact um, because it enables the media to fully comprehend uh, because they're, they're subject to deadlines and 24-hour news cycles. So it enables them to read what the judge has said after his past sentence and I think it, it improves communication both and importantly to the uh, victims' families but also to the media who, who have such a, a huge influence on public perception of Well, yes, you can't justices. complain about being taken out of context if you provide the context. <laughs> exactly. So it, it's a simple mechanism and um, uh, it's a matter of court, course for each individual judge. The council has also recommended that the court consider referring to child victims by name in court. I think most people would be surprised to hear that's not the case now. But can you speak further to that recommendation? Yes, it, again, it is hard for, for people in the community to understand that a court is a court of law um, and um, in my practice as a judge, uh, of course I didn't, I didn't have this huge responsibility of sentencing in these 
extremely difficult and, and highly emotive cases. But I did have the, the, the job of sentencing um, where deaths had occurred as a result of uh, dangerous driving causing death when there was alcohol. And similar considerations arise. I would always, well not always, but on most occasions speak to the victims, families, before I pass sentence. Um, and uh, what we think is that by using the child's name, and this, is, this, is, this was a very strong, strong feedback we got from um, the families and from the community consultation, uh, is a simple way of, of, of personalising it. But again, what we've, we, we haven't been prescriptive uh, our recommendation is uh, that um, in consultation with the heads of jurisdiction, and that would be effectively the Chief Justice, um, consideration be given to looking at some very interesting work that's been done by the Judicial College of Victoria, uh, which would, it's a process of educating the courts. And judges undertake, or many judges undertake, constant professional re-education. Some of the things that were happening when I first became a judge in 1994, no judge would regard as fair and appropriate now, but they were mm -hmm. back in 1994. So it's a process of, of changing as society changes and expectations change. So we, we thought um, that recommendation might uh, be of tremendous assistance in in uh, again um, communicating with families and um, helping them to understand as the judge undoubtedly has that their views and the effect on them has been taken into account. In fact there are quite a few recommendations that go to improving the way families are kept in the loop during these cases um, and I would encourage you to have a close look at the final report. There are some very interesting points made in those recommendations about what more can be done in that space to support families through that process. I note though that you've also provided some general advice to the Attorney-General. What's the difference between advice and recommendations? Well, um, recommendations relate directly to the terms of reference and under our um, a statutory remit which is set out in part 12 of the Penalties and Sentencing Act, um, part of our job is to respond to terms of reference and that's what we've done in this case. So we thought uh, that in relation to some areas that we thought were relevant and were possibly impacting on, on sentencing for child homicide cases, um, uh, that these were outside the terms of reference and we didn't have the resources or the time to examine it. So we've given, given advice to the attorney that these matters uh, need looking at. So effectively that's the difference. The recommendation relates to a specific term of reference and advice relates to something that's, that's come up in our opinion that mm. is probably impacting on this issue but has much wider um, uh, implications. So you advise a close look at the Serious Violent Offender Scheme. Can you explain how this works and why you've considered it? Yes, this was enacted in 1997 and effectively means that if a person is convicted of what's called a schedule offence, this is a reference to Schedule 1 in the Penalties and Sentencing Act which sets out a number of um, offences uh, which include manslaughter 
but mainly violent offences, but also trafficking in dangerous drugs and serious sexual offending. Uh, if a person is sentenced to 10 years or more, they must serve 80% of that sentence before being eligible for parole. So the court has no discretion. Uh, between five and 10 years, a court has a discretion in relation to one of those offences to make what's called a serious violent offence declaration. Now that's governed by uh, principles that have been developed by the Court of Appeal over many, many years. Uh, but you know, just to use an example again from my own experience, um, uh, the, the courts didn't have any advance notice back in 1997 that this was going to happen, at least I didn't, and maybe the Chief Judge did. Um, and I did a case um, just before this legislation commenced, a trial, a, a horrible trial, um, and I sentenced this fellow to 14 years imprisonment. Now, a month later, 14 years imprisonment under the old regime, he was eligible for parole after serving half, seven years. A month later, to achieve the same outcome, I would have had to give him, give him 22 years. Ah, um, because of the 80%? The 80%, so it's 14 years, 80% of that's 11.2. So it, it immediately, it completely changed uh, how we approached it. And that's, that's, you know, that's Parliament's complete right. But we think, and, and we, we argue the point, but we, we do not suggest that we've researched this fully because we haven't had the resources and it's not been part of the terms of reference. But our opinion is that in relation to these particular class of offences, child homicide offences, the SVO scheme may be putting unexpected and unintended downward pressure on head sentences. This is a really interesting illustration, though, of the ripple effect of any changes to the Criminal Code or the Penalties and Sentences Act, because even those small tweaks can have unintended consequences. I'm sure when they were introduced, no one thought they would drive down sentences. Yes, yes, quite so. And um, that's why in developing recommendations, which may or may not affect uh, policy decisions, uh, we've taken um, an evidence-based approach. Uh, we've consulted widely with a whole range of stakeholders. And I think the, the very makeup of the council, which is again governed by the statute, shows the diverse range of views. So we have uh, police officers, uh, prosecutors, uh, we have um, representatives from uh, victims associations, uh, we have uh, an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representative, but it's our research that has, uh, has really informed uh, that conclusion. What then do you say to someone who thinks this report hasn't gone far enough, that child killing is a heinous act and a person should be locked up for life? What do you say to them? Well, um, I would say um, gird your loins and read the report, even just read the executive summary, and particularly have regard to the chapter dealing with actual cases where we set out a summary of the facts and look at how the focus groups reacted to scenarios which we gave to them. Uh, these scenarios were based on actual cases. The names were changed, of course. A and look at those 
circumstances, look at the different circumstances of the offender and the offence, and then ask yourself, can I honestly, as a fair-minded person, uh, say that all of these people should be locked up for life? Or do I accept that it's much more nuanced, it's much more complex than that? And to achieve a just, just sentence, no, there should be um, there should be judicial discretion. John, thank you. Thanks, Kirsten. That's John Robertson, the chair of the Queensland Sentencing Advisory Council. You can find a copy of that final report and our earlier research report on our website. That's sentencingcouncil.qld.gov.au. I'm Kirsten McGregor. Thanks for listening. <laughs>